Welcome to Careers in Crescendo, Lessons for Musicians. I'm your host, Jeff Dunn. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by the faculty for the 2023 and the upcoming 2024 Eastman Leadership Academy. The Eastman Leadership Academy is a week-long, fully online summer program that allows for the emerging professional to collaborate with similarly passionate and dedicated musicians from across the country. Open to rising juniors, seniors, and graduate students, each day includes keynote lectures, workshops, and case studies dedicated to topics such as creating nonprofits, finance and fundraising, community engagement, building your network, and leadership. The week's work culminates in a final entrepreneurial pitch to the Academy faculty, and thanks to generous sponsorship from Yamaha, all Academy participants attend on a full tuition scholarship. To start today's program, let me introduce the Academy faculty. Monique Van Willing, the Director of Cultural Equity and Belonging at the New England Conservatory of Music. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be here. Sarah Forestieri, an alum of the Eastman School of Music and recipient of a Catherine Feline Schaus Arts Leadership Certificate of Achievement and a current Artistic Programming Associate for the City of Brampton in Ontario. Sarah, thanks for joining us today. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited to be here as well. And our fearless leader, another Eastman and ALP alumna, Rachel Roberts. Rachel is the Director of Strategic Initiatives at the Eastman School of Music, Director of the Institute for Music Leadership, and Associate Professor of Music Leadership. Welcome back to the podcast, Rachel. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for all that you do to make ELA run. Well, we are looking forward to a great conversation with our faculty today and a little bit about the Academy. Monique, let's begin with you. Tell us a little bit about your background. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, so my name is Monique Van Vuller, pronoun she, her. I am South African and have been in the United States for, I think it's now 11 years. And I am a proud mom. It's one of my new parts of my identity. My son is one year and four months old. And in terms of professionally, uh, my background is really in, uh, well, I'm a flute, jazz and classical flute player. That's what was my first degree that I studied and I pivoted into education, music education through a social justice lens. And my work has spanned from supporting a K through 12 program uh, with Youth Orchestra Los Angeles and supporting 250 to 300 beautiful children um, and youth and their families. And then I pivoted in, into higher ed to lead a music teacher training program. And now I'm doing uh, cultural equity and belonging work at New England Conservatory. Tell us a little bit more about your work in LA. And uh, if I remember correctly, that was uh, affiliated with Elsa Stemma. Is that correct? Yeah, so the work in LA was with the Youth Orchestra Los Angeles program, and it was one of their specific sites called Heart of Los Angeles, and they are an Alsa Stemma-inspired program. So they have predominantly, most of the students do classical music, and that is K-12, through and they also had a jazz um, program. And my role there was the director of the music department, so I functioned both as someone who shaped the, the way forward for the music department, someone who supported the teaching artist and staff, um, but also acted in some ways as a principal might or a vice principal might at school where I dealt with a lot of the discipline of students and really brought in culturally responsive teaching and healthy frames around how to develop youth and youth voice. Was there something in particular that uh, attracted you to the El Sistema philosophies? Yes, actually. So when I was um, a, a flute player in South Africa, I used to spend hours, of course, practicing. And I always used to think to myself, well, and I also did youth work in the community for about 10 years, working with youth. Um, and I always sort of couldn't figure out how to bring these two passions of mine together. 
And I literally would be practicing thinking about the fact that we have um, a sort of mass hunger across the African continent. We have HIV and AIDS, uh, which is a challenge. A lot of child-led homes and child-led spaces. I used to think of all of those issues and thinking about the fact that I'm not doing much musically. And so my flute teacher actually told me about our system. And in that same year, a few other people told me about our system. And this was when Maestro Abreu won um, the TED Prize that actually started the fellowship at the New England Conservatory. So then I started following it and that started my pathway to this work. Do some of those philosophies, I mean, have they carried with you into the work, not only that you did now, um, but also when you were the director of the Master Arts in teaching at the Longy School of Music as well? Definitely. So firstly, I've been involved in the system inspired field in the USA for eight or nine of the years that I've been in the US. And so I'm now on the board of our system USA, the national organization. And I serve there as vice chair of the board, chair of governance, and I've done all sorts of different things on the board while um, serving in that space. And so I think I've always, I've always centered youth voice and or student voice is a big part of my work and a big part of my philosophy. And so that is, um, so the music teacher training program in LA, I was teaching teachers how to center youth voice in addition to doing everything else that they're doing. And in my current job, I do try and um, center student voice and just think about how to lift their voices, how to create brave spaces. On that topic at NEC right now, you are currently the inaugural director of the Center for Cultural Equity and Belonging at NEC. Can you tell us a little bit about the mission you've brought into that work that you do now? Yes, thanks for asking that question. So in short, we have four pillars that cultural equity and belonging derives and supports across campus, and that is learning, dialogue, support and resources, and collaboration. And so that looks like all sorts of different things across campus, from individual support of students, faculty, and staff, to institutional support, and, and supporting staff and faculty spaces, to doing programming, like panels and trainings and workshops. Sarah, I'd love to talk with you just a little bit about your background. You and I met when you were a student and I was a new faculty member here at Eastman. Um, but can you describe to our listeners a little bit more of your background, what your trajectory is and, and the work that you are doing in Canada right now? For sure. Thanks so much, Rachel. Uh, yeah, my name is Sarah Forestieri. Uh, my pronouns are she, her. Um, and I currently work for the city of Brampton, uh, which is a city uh, just west of Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And my role there is um, as the artistic programming associate uh, within the performing arts department, which is part of a larger arts and culture umbrella of the city. Uh, and so I am a performing arts presenter helping to program five uh, municipal venues um, with multidisciplinary arts programming. And my portfolio focuses largely on a program called This is Brampton, where the city of Brampton collaborates with local artistic entrepreneurs uh, and curators to present local artists on our stages. And so we provide um, marketing and technical support uh, and a venue to help them launch their careers and, and build their brand. So it's a really uh, rewarding role and I get to meet so many incredible artists uh, every day. And yes, like you mentioned, um, I graduated from Eastman with a master's in voice performance and literature, as well as an arts leadership certificate back in 2019, which provided me with so many opportunities to get my feet wet with music leadership and arts management. And I'd say that 
those are the opportunities that uh, made me realize that arts administration and programming was where I wanted to be, you know, somewhere where I could, you know, affect change, but still satisfy all of my artistic passions. And now I'm well into my fifth year of a career in arts management, uh, five years out of out of graduate studies. And, and here we are. <laughs> It's so fun to have watched your journey, and I can't believe it's been five years already. A couple of things that I would love to have you dig into just a little bit more. One is, can you talk about some of those experiences that really opened up new pathways for you? You know, for listeners that may or may not know, the Arts Leadership Certificate of Achievement Program provides opportunities for Eastman students to go through different pieces of curriculum, have an internship, have access to special grant funding to support professional development of musicians, both on and off the stage. So it can be integrated within performance-oriented, it can be entrepreneurial ventures, it can be whatever a student chooses to make out of it. But, you know, you say that it was impactful for you, Sarah. Can you talk just a little bit more about what some of those specific experiences with ALP were that led you in this direction? For sure. I'd say, I mean, first off, just the fact that I was able to do this simultaneously alongside my performance degree was just incredible because it allowed me to still, you know, continue my studies, to be on the stage, to actively be working on my performance skills while gaining all of these extra skills for my for my toolkit. And so, and one of those opportunities was the internships that the ALP program helps their students take part in and, and provide funding for as well. So one for me was uh, working as the development intern with a summer opera festival in St. John's, Newfoundland. And one of my projects there that summer was to curate a symposium about art as an instrument for influencing attitudinal change. And this was in connection with the Canadian premiere of As One, which is a chamber opera piece about a transgender woman named Hannah. And St. John's, Newfoundland is a very small town. Um, and so for me, that experience of seeing so many members of this community come together to participate in this dialogue around this work was really eye-opening for me. And it, it was a chance for me to see firsthand, you know, the impact that conversations about art um, can have on the industry, but but also in, in communities. So yeah, that was one of that those um, light bulb moments for me where I was just like, you know, I want to be a part of this. This is this is where I need to be. Thank you for sharing that. And I know the other piece that you and I had the opportunity to collaborate on was an independent study that you did while you were at Eastman. Is that something that you would want to share just a snapshot of some of that work and interests and research? It's certainly of interest of mine too. So definitely. Yes. So in my final year of graduate studies, I had this idea to take on an independent research project, which became uh, combating institutionalized sexism in opera leadership with you as my advisor and mentor. And I'm so grateful that you came on that journey with me because, well, not only did I, I learn so much um, from that research and the whole process around doing that research, but it really fueled my fire to uh, continue in this career path as, as a female in, in the arts leadership space. So, and it continues to inform so much of my work today. So, but yeah, at the time when I had start, started thinking about the research, I had just finished that um, internship uh, in Newfoundland at Opera on the Avalon. And I was so fortunate to be inspired and, you know, working for an all-female leadership team there. 
And I started wondering why I wasn't seeing more females in senior leadership roles across Canada and the United States. Um, and at that time, um, only 25% of opera companies in Canada had female general directors, which is, you know, not awful. It's not great. Um, but the other trend and the other piece of it was that the majority of the larger houses had, you know, mainly exclusively male leaders. And so this study was to really, the purpose of the study was to identify the barriers preventing these qualified women from advancing into these roles. But I really wanted to focus on the success of the individual female arts leaders, um, to determine, you know, what are those um, steps that we can take to, to break barriers? And a lot came to light from that from that research. But I think the theme that resonated with me the most was was mentorship. And that pretty much came, it was echoed by nearly every woman that I interviewed and who participated in the research. And, you know, not just having someone to turn to for support or career advice, but it, it really means being able to call on your mentors and your allies to vouch for you in professional development opportunities and hiring processes. And um, I've been so fortunate to have experienced firsthand the impact that, you know, a mentorship relationship can have, you know, on my career. And that's why, that's why it's so important to me that, uh, you know, we continue this work and that women bring other women up with them. That's, that's how we're going to break the glass ceiling. Thanks for giving that snapshot, Sarah. And it was such a joy to see you present your research too at the University of Rochester's Equity and Inclusion Conference. You had a whole poster display and a lot of engagement there. So, and I love too that that has still remained a piece of your mindset and how you think and operate and contribute with your work now. I have one last question about your background, but I think this might be a nice transition for both of you, actually, uh, diving into some some other questions. Sarah, I heard you mention when you talked about your work, especially with the project, this is Brampton, about working with artistic entrepreneurs. Now, some of you may know my background prior to coming to Eastman. I was at New England Conservatory, which is where I met Monique. How many years ago? Oh my gosh. But um, I started and ran the entrepreneurial musicianship department at New England Conservatory. The word entrepreneurship has so many different meanings to so many different people. And I've heard about that clear back since 2009 when I started at NEC. And I'm curious, Sarah, maybe beginning with you, since that's where this new question came from, you you mentioned working with artistic entrepreneurs. What how how do you frame that? What does an artistic entrepreneur look like? And what are some of the skill sets that they they employ in their work? Yeah, for sure. So in this, I think I, I agree that there are so many different contexts for artistic entrepreneurs. But for us uh, at the city of Brampton, we're really looking to work with creatives and producers who are deeply rooted in the community and deeply connected to, to local artists who have something to say, who have the, the idea, the brand, and are just looking for you know, that next step, that additional assistance to bring their idea to life. And we as the city of Brampton have this, um, there's a, the incredible mutual benefit of working with young creatives and young artists who already have that that established authenticity within the community as they bring their artists um, with them to um, to our stages. And for me, the the folks that we're looking for are those who um, definitely have you know the passion and the, and the artists and the and the the talent, but also those who are exceptionally organized and detail oriented. 
and know what it takes, the the logistics, I think, in putting on a show. And for a lot of them, they're putting on a show in a professional venue for the first time. And so that those time management skills and organizational skills um, are definitely something that we're looking for as we mentor them in that process and working with uh, our, our technicians and our front of house staff and our box office um, staff. That's definitely a piece that um, is key as we as we work on those skills together. Thanks, Sarah. Monique, do you have any insights in your perspective, your work, what it means to be an artistic entrepreneur? Thanks for the question. I think in terms of my work, both my previous career as a performer, as well as now in arts administration and leadership, and even through the lens of equity, diversity, and inclusion, that the word that came to mind was being resourceful and sort of being a multifaceted entity or person that can do more than one thing. And so as a performer, for me, that was doing different types of music, being able to perform in different spaces, being able to write music and create my own space as a musician. But now as an arts administrator is giving most of my energy to my full-time job, but then also thinking about what are my passions that align with this and support this full-time work that I can go after as well. So I end up doing workshops and things like this, you know, with with Eastman Leadership Academy, supporting uh, students, teaching in spaces, supporting lecturers in in spaces, all as little part-time mechanisms that really fuel my passion. So I think I put the lens of how do we fuel our passion just knowing that in life and as one settles, that financially is a really critical piece of how do you settle, how do you save, how do you create a viable living for yourself and family. And I I actually wonder whether for most people that might be more than just the thing that's in front of them, um, especially in the music world. I really appreciate you bringing that up. It's not just the artistic creative side, but it's looking at the financial side too. And and I think our office, Jeff and Blair and I, and certainly others talk with our students about having a portfolio career, right? That there's multiple different sources of income and it's not as if you do one thing, that's the sole thing that you do, right? Monique, I, I want to pick up on something that you said about being an artistic entrepreneur, but I think it spans beyond that is that you have to do more than one thing, right? And what that also means, I think, is your skill sets have to be quite diversified. I'm curious if if both of you could explore what are the skills that you use in your daily life? And maybe uh, I could start. You know, I used to feel very pressured around myself, around gaining skill sets, career pathing, career pathing, which is really important Yet I'm also in a space where I've realized that every single thing that I've ever done from that youth voluntary work to uh, all the different types of voluntary work to the spaces I've studied, the performances to the social justice work to education spaces that I've actually drawn from skill sets and I've picked up um, sometimes via osmosis (laughs) and sometimes literally trying to pick up skills that I end up using in spaces and places they might just look different so if I had to name some of them it would be compassionate listening is a skill I have to use in my role every day um, and understanding how to hold brave and safe space for others and then strategy is a big thing in uh, diversity equity inclusion work and uh, since I've 
done sort of strategy work in different formats in previous roles. I get to sort of pull that lens of how do you scaffold out change? Or if I'm trying to do this project or this panel or whatever, how do I scaffold out the project planning for that? Or how do I scaffold out change institutionally over time? Um, which leads me to one of the biggest pieces that I've, or, and maybe one of the things I enjoy most is micro to macro thinking and multidimensional thinking. And I think without those things, it can be really hard to do work that requires change and transformation because sometimes you have to be in the micro the minutiae of the day you have to listen to someone's story but then you also have to zoom out and you have to move things forward more broadly and that can be very challenging and I actually think it's my multiple dimensions of music that have allowed my brain to be able to think and zoom in and out in that way so that the transfer of skills become really important I didn't learn all the skills in one way shape or form but I did I've done a lot of thinking of how to transfer skills into different space and place. I can jump in with some thoughts as well. Um, well, first off, I, I wholeheartedly agree with all that was said. And I think a lot of the skills that I was going to bring off are, are very much related. And one of those big ones for me is, is flexibility and added, um, just being adaptable. This one is huge for me working in performing arts, but specifically working in a government setting, because there's a lot of change that can come at you very fast. And so being able to shift gears quickly is uh, very necessary at times. Another one of those soft skills is emotional intelligence and self-awareness. Um, you know, being able to understand your, your emotions, but also being able to apply that to others. I think in my role, I, I work a lot with, with multiple community partners and state and stakeholders. And so that's something that's really key when you're bringing people together uh, to work on a project or initiate an idea with, with a common goal. And uh, Rachel, you hinted on this financial management is a very important hard skill to have, which is one of the ones that, you know, didn't come supernaturally to me. And I've had to work at that one. So I, I know how valuable it is. But even just things as simple as becoming a whiz with Excel is something that is, uh, is, a, is a skill that uh, shouldn't go unnoted uh, when it comes to arts administration and arts leadership. I always love a good spreadsheet. <laughs> Did you know that the University of Rochester has a platform to connect its students, alumni, and parents? Pursue growth and unlock opportunity with the Meliora Collective. Expand your network, share your expertise, find and post jobs, and join the community of the University of Rochester online at thecollective.rochester.edu. It's interesting to hear you both speak to some of the skills that you have been utilizing in your roles. Can you think back and reminisce on your experience, your education, this musical training in either experiences that set you on your journey to be in these roles or built some of those skill sets? Sarah, let's start with you. Certainly. I would say for me, the biggest one would be time management and organizational skills. Um, definitely something that's made me stronger in all the roles I've had in the last little while. And, you know, when I think back to my time in school, you know, having a full day of classes and then running over to work my assistantship job in the middle of the day and then running to opera rehearsals in the evening. It was, you know, some days were a wild ride. And I think that takes discipline and careful planning to get all of the things done. 
And, you know, today in my job, a lot of what I do involves event planning and, you know, building a work back and knowing exactly how much time each task will take so that I can plan the trajectory of a project from idea to execution. And so in a way, I think while I was, while I was a music student, I was project managing my life and my degree. And that's a skill that has come in super handy for me. And uh, I'm actually in the process of going back to school right now and uh, obtaining my project management certificate. And so that's a path that I am exploring. I'm two thirds of the way through, but I think it is such a natural fit because of those skills and experiences that you know we all inevitably have when we're doing uh, an undergraduate or a master's degree in music. Uh, so on my end, I often, uh, especially now at NEC, I've reflected a lot on the notion of biomusicality, which is actually a concept shared with me by Dr. Mehmet Sanliko, one of our faculty members who ran a whole symposium on this last year. And I've realized how the fact that I started in classical in high school, actually, went on to do the beginning of my degree in classical, switched to jazz, finished that degree in jazz, and went on to do a classical honors because I was really concerned about being able to do both because I'd spent so much time, that that is actually being very beneficial for all of my work. Again, that notion of transfer. So that was actually a very challenging process for me. I, I took me forever to learn how to swing. I couldn't give myself the permission. It was hard to give myself the permission to improvise and just to let go and bring my personality into my music. But I eventually got it over time. And that actually helps me now in a lot of my conversations because musically, I can see and hear things through a classical lens and through a jazz lens. But it also means that when we're thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion work, I can totally see where people are coming from. Like I can totally see why how even the notion of improvisation is spoken about differently in different realms. And then often I can spot the disconnect. And whether that comes through in my work overtly or in ways that I'm thinking about putting things together, that's a big piece. So that's actually where the musical training is actually transferred into other spaces. And then linked to that is uh, both doing different types of music and all sorts of different things is shifting in space, being able to be in more than one space, uh, multiple spaces in one day, and asking myself what is needed from me in the space while still holding on to my values. So that can be a musical question from a classical quartet to a jazz band, you know, to something else, uh, gospel versus uh, pop or South African jazz. Uh, versus in a space where, um, like my past work in our system-inspired space was supporting a student who needed deep support and maybe has gone through trauma, to speaking to their parents, to walking a donor through space, to supporting a teaching artist. How do I move through space and place with people not changing who I am, but understanding what is needed for me and most helpful in space? And that value versus what is most helpful in space, um, I've done a lot of thinking about and currently I'm exploring as well. It's interesting to hear you speak um, about your values and retaining that through the work that you do. In that same vein, how do you describe and identify success for yourself? Are there certain values that perhaps you hold true there? No, it sounds good. You know, this is actually a really challenging question for me. It might be the stage of life that I'm in. If you had to ask me five years ago, my answer would have been very much, it would have used different words, but it would have been very much about career pathing and very much about or, or the impetus of that would have been, where am I going? My work, the you know the complexity of the work, what I want to do. And that's really shifted since I've had a child. There's actually no other way for me to express that I'm a different human now. And my focus on values really comes 
yes, I'm going to do my best work. I'm going to give my 200% wherever I am. But my focus is really on family and building the best possible space for my child. And also, since I'm an immigrant, you know, my family is all back home in South Africa. And so parents are getting older, you know, things like that. I have a big focus on the relationship, knowing that time is really precious. And so... For me, success is really about relationships, and that's been a key focus of mine. Sometimes for better or for worse in professional spaces, you know, if I'm focusing on relationship, things take longer, you know, there's more explanation needed. It seems like maybe not as much is done as quickly. So I'm actually, to be very frank, I'm actually continuously thinking about that question. I don't have a full answer for that right now, but I also think that's the nature of being human. (laughs) So that's okay. Yes. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Monique. Similarly, it's something I I think about a lot and uh, change my mind about every day. But, you know, I I think for me being in, you know, when I was uh, at Eastman, even in my undergrad, I had this very set idea that success for me was I was going to do the singer track and I was going to do grad school. And then I was going to do an apprenticeship at an opera house and I was going to perform and and travel. And and that was my very narrow minded um, tunnel vision version of success, you know, what I knew. But uh, I'm I'm so grateful for all of the other for all of the opportunities that I had through through my research and and through ALP that you know expanded that and I think now I've come to this definition for myself that you know for me success is when I get to work on projects that are artistically and and creatively satisfying um, or or positively challenging me or or doing both at the same time actually. Because, you know, yeah, before I found music leadership, you know, I loved performing and I really thought it was going to be the thing, but it didn't allow me to, or that version of being a performer didn't allow me to flex all these other, you know, niche skills that I had like project management or event planning or the really detail oriented things that I love to do. And so when I found this career path, it was like all of the parts of me, all of my strengths were being used in a really exciting way. And I was always challenged. I was creatively satisfied and it was the coming together of so many things that I enjoyed. It also gave me the freedom to choose uh, artistic opportunities that were really meaningful to me, you know, not having to say yes to everything because I did have, you know, that dual income and um, that other support. And so, yeah, that to me is that success. The fact that I get to use all the different facets of myself, the musician, the educator, the administrator, project manager that that brings me a lot of joy and I'm just really grateful that that's what I get to call my career right now at this time. Sarah and Monique you both joined us last year for the Eastman Leadership Academy which is a five-day virtual conference that we run for college students, graduate students, early career professionals Can you describe your experience last summer? What was this like engaging as the keynote speakers, teaching a case study, mentoring them in some workshop sessions? What was your experience like? It was an incredible experience just being able to be in the room with um, so many passionate young arts administrators and you know, the fact that we were coming together virtually from so many different places uh, and participating, I think we all felt just so connected by the end, just just the same as if we had been in person for a whole week. So that was just, it was, it was that, that piece of it was, was so great uh, to be a part of. And then in terms of the keynotes and the case studies that I presented, 
you know, as I shared, I had some really profound experiences in my career so far that were really rooted in community engagement projects. Before working at the city of Brampton, I actually also worked for the Canadian Opera Company as the manager of community partnerships and programs, which was primarily educational uh, programming. But I had the chance to work with children and, and families, for most of whom it was their first experience with opera or classical music. And so now moving into an artistic programming role, that community engagement lens is very much a part of what I do now. Um, and so in my my keynotes and, and workshops uh, last summer, I, I really wanted to explore that idea of, you know, how do we create a sense of belonging in music uh, in our organizations and our programs and ensure that it is accessible to someone who is new to the art form? which of course takes time and planning and, and resources. So we talked a lot about how to make the most of the resources that we do have and how you know community engagement can't be an afterthought. It has to be baked into the inception of a project so that the time uh, and the resources needed can be accounted for and, and procured at the start. So uh, we spent a lot of time um, exploring some of the ways that uh, we can be effective in doing that and then coming up with a community engagement plan, you know, working on how can we create a strategy for how organizations can develop that culture of community engagement right from the beginning sparks of, of a project. And we had a lot of fun kind of exploring that through each of the groups, nonprofits that they were working on throughout that week, which was which was a lot of fun. And so many great ideas came out in such a short amount of time. I had a similar experience. It was really fun and inspiring for me personally. You know, while I was there to do a keynote and case study and support all of the cohort members' work, I was very inspired by the types of questions shared. Also, the types of questions from different angles and different stages in one's sort of either career or development of idea. I thought that's really uh, beautiful. And um, I was very inspired by all the different ideas that came through in the Shark Tank, which is such a cool concept to me. One of my favorite concepts of last year, the Shark Tank pitch event where we got to hear from everyone and actually see how in that short period of time, folks had actually implemented some of the things from um, Sarah's space and from my space and actually had infused some of that into the ideas. And that was really inspiring to see the collaboration um, that was happening in the cohort. In terms of my um, some of the content that I shared, um, my session was on human dignity as well as cultural humility. And just as an end, the human dignity was something I was just thinking about so much last summer as a reframe on my own uh, personal and professional work and how if you place the humans at the center of the work and really have it be relational centered, how does that shift the rest of the work? Um, we also looked at asset-based community development and just thought through how, what does this mean for artistic practice and for the types of projects that people are developing if you put community at the center. So sort of reframing the way we approach our work if we focus on something different. If you both were talking to potential applicants, what would you tell them? Why should they sign up? What value did you feel like the Academy was bringing to those who participated? I think it's fun. I really wish I had this type of space as a, a young artist or student or even someone who's, you know, completing a degree and really thinking about what is this next thing that I'm going to do or what is this project that I'm currently busy with and I don't quite have the shape and form for it yet or I'm really interested in the community. How is that connected to the arts? I could have done with a program like this that is so collaborative you know, sometimes learning is not just from the person, the keynote person coming in or the case study, but the learning really happens from each other. 
And there were also these informal lunches that happened. And I actually think cohort-based work is one of the most powerful types of programs or work that can happen because you're working together, you're getting to know each other. And so it's both the work inside for this this week that you are all learning and you're creating and you get to be part of a shark tank. Who would not want to be part of Shark Tank, you know? But then also it's this connection that you have now with a cohort of people that you can carry on, continue to be colleagues and peers. And, and sometimes that post-connection can be really powerful as well because you never know who you're going to meet in space and how you might end up collaborating. I would agree with that. Yeah, you could be meeting your future future arts leaders of, of or arts organizations for sure. I would say that, you know, this is one of those opportunities that, you know, a chance to try something new and flex those non-performance skills. So even if, you know, your goal is to make a career solely as a performer, the skills you can learn in a program like ELA, they're just, they're so invaluable and will only make you a smarter, you know, more hireable musician with a deeper perspective on, you know, the entire ecosystem of the industry. And yeah, this is just one of those opportunities to explore music leadership in a really safe and encouraging space with people who are, you know, just as passionate um, about music as as you are. So I would say yes if you're if you're considering it, if you're on the fence of whether or not it's for you, I would say give it a shot because you know it can open so many doors. And you know, experiences like this one, you know, certainly did for me. I, I wouldn't be where I am today without these these opportunities. So. Sarah, what was a moment that stood out to you from your experience at ELA? Was there a a highlight or something that you really walked away from that had a lot of meaning and impact? Oh, yes, there were many. Um, Like Monique mentioned, the Shark Tank sessions were just, I was completely and utterly blown away by the ideas that came together in such a short period of time. And, And so many of them were fully formed that I think, you know, we could all see them launching potentially in the very near future. So that was exciting. But also the lunchtime sessions, which weren't structured, but just an opportunity for the participants to ask questions about, you know, my experiences or each other's experiences and and dig deeper into the case studies, whatever it was, it was just, you know, a lovely opportunity to, again, um, feel connected to the group and, um, and network with each other with with future music leaders. And Monique, what about for you? I think for me, was number one, the shark tank. I'm just all about that shark tank. I think it's wonderful. And I some of the ideas were incredible. And I, you know, I think we had to choose, you know, who in a sense who won the shark tank. And that was really difficult, you know, just to think through the different projects and how amazing they were. I think for me, creating sort of safe space uh, for people, even around the notion of social cultural identity. And I sort of got a range of questions, some questions, um, from people who had not orally on the beginning of that journey and then some people who were sort of maybe further along. And I love sort of seeing the openness to ask those questions and engage in those discussions from whichever angle someone is coming from. And so I like the safe space that was created in the program. And one final question for both of you. Tell us just a little bit about some projects that you're currently working on or excited to do. What's coming up in the near future for you? Yeah, so as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, I continue to uh, oversee the This is Brampton program, which has grown a lot in the last two years of my being a part of it. We now have 
12 curators on our roster and we present uh, about 25 performances in a season. So that keeps me uh, busy, but I'm also really looking forward to a collaboration between uh, Brampton on Stage, which is our, our main presenting season, uh, and the Toronto Symphony. This is the second time that we've collaborated with them for a run out concert in Brampton. And the concert is called Bangra and Beyond, and it's going to explore various composers influenced by the music of Southeast Asia. Um, and feature the orchestra, as well as several local bongra dancers and, and companies for a community concert. So uh, I'm really looking forward to that. There is a large and, and wonderful South Asian population here in Brampton. So uh, just really excited to bring this, this concert to the community and, and collaborate again with the Toronto Symphony. And on my end, you said I'm focusing inward at the New England Conservatory over the next few months. And one of the big projects in the spring, the theme for this year is honoring culture. And we'll be having a series of panels around social aesthetics in music. And that's going to be a couple of panels from racialized aesthetics. We will be having a talk by Dr. Chris Jenkins, who works at Oberlin, who recently wrote a book, a really great book around assimilation and integration in music. And then... We'll be having uh, panels all around the theme of aesthetics in music. So gendered aesthetics, aesthetics around the diaspora, queer aesthetics, as well as uh, a, a few further aesthetics of cultural heritage. And we're hoping to bring in experts or people who've written about that piece and then expand the panel with faculty or guests or alum. So I'm excited about that notion of social aesthetics in, in music and how that shifts the conversation around diversity, equity, inclusion, and really centers the music in that conversation. Monique and Sarah, thank you so much. We look forward to having you join us again for the Eastman Leadership Academy this summer. Thanks to all of you for joining me on the podcast today. And please join us for the Eastman Leadership Academy, June 3rd through 7th, 2024. Applications are due March 31st. Learn more at musicleadership.org. Today's episode of Careers in Crescendo, Lessons for Musicians was written and hosted by Rachel Roberts and Jeff Dunn. The episode was produced by Kelly Jetsum. The music was written and produced by Will J, and the artwork designed by Joyce Sang. As always, if you have questions, comments, or ideas for episodes, please contact us via our website at iml.esm.rochester.edu. If you like this episode, share it with your friends and colleagues and leave us a review on your preferred streaming platform. This podcast is a production of the Institute for Music Leadership at the Eastman School of Music. The views expressed in the podcast are the interviewees and do not represent the Eastman School of Music or the Institute for Music Leadership. From the IML, I'm Jeff Dunn. See you next time.